The reading of the word today comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be conformed into the image of your Son. And that can't happen by your own strength, it can't happen by your own desires, even God, or of our own efforts but only by your hand and by your will. So we humble ourselves again and come to your word and place ourselves under your word that you might work mightily in us, that you and you alone might be glorified. Amen. We live in a city... That is divided. Socioeconomically, politically, racially, even geographically. Where do you live? Oh, we live southwest. Hey, well done. You've arrived. But there's one thing that unites this city. It's our ardent hatred of geese. You can't go downtown, you can't go to a park, you, you can't even walk on a path. There they are, leaving everything behind them. You can't let a children, you know, a little child run ten feet away from you, you'll get attacked by some geese. But, as these geese bring our city to the brink of ruin, you must remember that geese have saved the city of Rome. Story goes like this. In 380 BC, the Gauls had made their way, made their way over the Alps. And they were heading south towards Rome. And there was nothing to stop these fierce warriors. On the battlefield, they were far superior to the Romans. And so many within Rome fled to the outlying areas for safety. And so it was easy for Brennus, the leader of the Gauls, to come in and take the outer part of Rome. 
And so they take it, and there was nothing they could do but flee to the Capitoline Hill, up to the little citadel there is where the, the senators and a few men who didn't flee had left. And while this is happening, Brennus, the, the leader of the Gauls, he sees this cliff, and he sends his men up, and it's quite steep, so they had to go one man on standing on the man below him. And they finally, they make it up to the top. And the, the great city of Rome is within their grasp. The man perches up and over the edge of the cliff, and who is there but to greet him? But some geese who begin squawking and wake up a man named Marcus Manlius, probably one of the top five names, best names of all time. Marcus Manlius wakes up, grabs his sword and shield, and starts repelling and going down and killing these Gauls who are going up. And so the city of Rome is saved by geese. But... They still have a problem. You still have the Gauls on the outside and you on the inside. And so the Gauls, they know that they can't take the inner part of the city. So they go back to the old tried and true fashion of just taking your time and letting them starve to death. The Romans here, they are surely alive, but they are surely dead. They need someone who will come and rescue them from this certain death. And that's the same thing you need as well. You need someone who will come and pull us out of this death that is before us and who will give us a new life. And this, brothers and sisters, this is a main idea here in the text that we're going to be driving in, is that we need someone to come and rescue us and to actually, it's your only hope is for someone to come and rescue you from your certain death and bring you into new life. I'll finish the story here for you. Camellius, who was once exiled, comes back. And he gathers up a bunch of people who had fled the city. And they come in. And the Gauls are trying to get the Romans to just bribe them and pay them off. So there's some gold on the scales. And he comes up with his sword and he swipes off the gold. And he says, we Romans don't defend our city with gold, but with steel. There, the battle begin. And death was defeated, the goals were driven back, and new life had come forth. So how are we going to see this main idea that we must realize and see that your only hope, not one of many, but your only hope is in the resurrection, this new life that will come after our certain death. How do we see that here in our text? Well, in verse 13 we're going to see that It's so that we may not grieve. That you may not grieve. Here, chapter in verses 14 through 15. It's so that we may believe that Jesus died and rose. And verses 16 through 18, finally, is so that we will always be with the Lord. So the resurrection is your only hope. So that you may not grieve, so that you may believe, so that you will always be with the Lord. 
So what's happening here with Paul in this, this city? Paul is on the second of his third, uh, three missionary journeys here. And he's now on the far side of the Aegean Sea. In which you're going to see these cities of Philippi and Berea and Athens and Corinth as well. And things are going well. You see in Acts 17 that Paul, he went in. And as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few, very Luconian way of writing, and not a few of the leading women. So here comes Paul, this man, and they respond perfectly. They hear this, this gospel message and they respond in faith. And you think that everything must, must be great, right? You follow everything. And everything goes well. You're right with God. You and God. Everything is right there. So everything must be well with me and everything around me. Well, go to the next verse in Acts 17. Now in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. You see here how how salvation and then suffering are almost intertwined in one another. This is the response of their new walk and their new faith with God. Now it's either by the, the, the hand of persecution or by the hand of a providential God and natural death that this grief continues to come to this local church. So let's go to our, our verse here and see this what they're wrestling with. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So what's happening and what's causing all this grief is that they start to see and they begin to see that their brothers and sisters in Christ are passing away. And they did not yet understand that their friend's soul who was in the ground, that the soul is immortal. And therefore, when they buried them, they buried all of their hopes with them in the grave and covered it with dirt. And when you see someone in the grave... You grieve them and you grieve that loss. But you're also grieving yourself because you're not only just seeing them in the grave, you're seeing yourself in the grave as well because you know that it's only a matter of time. And so then your grief is compounded and compounded as you see and you grieve the one who's lost, but then you also see your helpless state as well. And so... Let's be honest, if there's no hope in death, there's no joy in the world. How could you enjoy yourself if you're on this endless march towards hopelessness? So you see that our grief is not exclusive to death, but it's epitomized in death. 
And there may be grief in every sphere of our lives, but as we're standing again on the edge of this grave, it is the realization of the brokenness of every sphere of our lives. Now either you have this perpetual grief, or you have hope in the midst of brokenness. Some of you are here, not naive. Some of you are here and you don't have this hope. And you have to admit, it's one of the greatest of tragedies is to die with no hope. And this is why the world will constantly bring us to focus on the present because they have no answer for the future whatsoever. So they'll bring you, and that's just the natural response. And deep down, you know, whatever the the distraction might be of a greater career or consuming this or buying that or a bigger house or a faster car, whatever it might be. But deep down, you know that it doesn't give you any hope. It only distracts you as you inevitably march further and further and closer and closer to this unanswerable death. So as the world gives them all of that, look what Paul gives them says, we do not want you to be uninformed. As though he he's not telling them for the first time, but reminding them again and again. Saying, guys, we've gone over this a hundred times. I don't want you to be uninformed. Like we're spiritual children who just need to be reminded again and again and again and again. Why do you think we gather every week, every week? We need to be reminded. Well, okay, well, who are we talking about? Well, we're about those who have fallen asleep. And so that we grieve, yes, do we grieve? Absolutely, because we, we can soberly see the broken world around us. So, yeah, do we grieve? Of course. But we do not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. So, yes, we realize that here we are again. Our plot of land is in the east of Eden. We're not yet back in the garden, so we do grieve. But Paul is telling them, I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. So then, what's the content of our, of our hope? If it's not in the world, then it's not in ourselves. Where do we find it? Go back to the text. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Right here in verse 14. For since we believe. We must have the, see that there's this difference between the comprehension and belief. We must make this clear distinction between them. It's never enough to have an understanding of objective facts. To be aware of the fact that this man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem, died in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. To believe and to, to have an understanding of those facts doesn't do you much but make you an elementary historian. That's what it does. You must go beyond this comprehension to belief. And this is where so many of us who might grow up in the church, children, listen. This is where so many of us who grow up in the church make the fatal mistake. Is that, yes, we understand the facts 
of Jesus Christ dying, but we do not yet believe in it. So we, yes, we can recite whatever we want to recite, but here we are standing in our own strength, standing on our own feet. When you come over and begin to believe, you not only understand it, but now you're not, you're, you're entirely giving yourself over to this trust, this faith, this belief, and you're not standing on your feet any longer, but you're leaning entirely into the hands of Christ, no longer standing in your own strength. We must understand this difference between comprehension and belief. Okay, so we, so we believe. What, what then do we believe? But since we believe that, content marker, haughty, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. As I'm talking about in Sunday school, you, we can't escape this message. This is the, the centrality of all that we have and all that we can proclaim. The only hope of the world is in that, that Jesus died and rose again. Don't understand it, believe it. Just look at it in John chapter 19. And then they took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a thorn of crowns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up and kneel to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they flog him. So he, and Pilate hands him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. He went to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Christ died. Why? Why Why would he do this? Why would the Son of God do this? Why would the Son of Man do this? Without the shedding of blood, there was never, there was never forgiveness of sin. So in the original curse in the garden, when they sin, a death you will surely die. Paul puts it this way, the wages of sin is death. The only way to undo this curse is through death. So he dies. The Joseph of Arimathea, the most, two most unlikely of men, the Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had come to him, remember, chapter 3 in the middle of the night. He now goes to Christ, who has died during the day. And Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the sun is beginning to set. So they take the body off the cross and frantically prepare Christ's body for burial as the sun is setting and it's going to be the Sabbath. And they finally, they, they quickly prepare his body and rush him and place him into a, a tomb. Chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, it's Sunday, Mary Magdalene had come early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran to Peter and they said, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where he was, where they had laid him. 
the other disciples leave, and Mary keeps stays there and just is weeping and weeping. And she see this sees this man coming up. And when they said to her, Woman, why why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw that it was Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him, tell me where you have laid him, that I may take care of him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Christ died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. Okay, so if this is not, I comprehend it, now I believe it, but what does that mean for me? How does that give me hope? Again, Christ is the all in all, so it means everything to you, for His death is now your death, and His resurrection will be your resurrection. There's no way around it. And when you're in Christ, His death is your death, and His rising is your rising. Think about it this way. We're the body. We're the church. Christ is the head. The head lays down what happens to the body. The body follows. The head rises for a new day. The body follows. In the same way, we are in the body of Christ. When he lays down, his death is our death. When he rises up, we naturally follow. And his resurrection is now our resurrection as well. So our hope then... Is that we are tied to Christ through this, this bond of faith that cannot be broken. So when you're grieving and when you're in the midst of despair, meditate upon this, this glorious resurrection. What is your hope in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul and life and death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. This Christ lives that we will live with him. And when you begin to meditate, and Joel pointed this out to me this week, when you begin to meditate on the resurrection, it just begins to show up everywhere. We, so in our world, what we want is a quick answer. The resurrection seems too far off. It seems too abstract. We want pragmatic answers in our utilitarian world. But look, through Scripture, you see the resurrection everywhere. In the beginning, you have this chaotic water, and life is coming out of this water. You have Adam and Eve, physically alive, but spiritually dead. And out of this death comes life, their children. Isaac, the firstborn son, though he is, you see in Hebrews that he is he's figuratively, he is brought back from the dead. And where do the Gospels all end? Not with the moral teachings of Christ, not with Monday, Thursday, nor with Good Friday. The climax of every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. So it's natural that then, as Paul and these other apostles go out, that this is the centrality of their message as well. 
You see it in Romans here in chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, then you go down to chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. You can make it through the present suffering and into future glory through the resurrection. You see it in Galatians as well. Though I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Through this resurrection, I have the life through Christ. Or In Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That He was buried, that He was raised. On the third day, according to Scripture. Even in Ephesians here. What is our spiritual state? Well, we are dead. And our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then you go to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You guys see this? Resurrection is everywhere. It's glorious. Amen. Or in Philippians, he said, for, this sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Why would you do that, Paul? You had it. Everything we grasp after, why would you, why would you forsake it all? That by any means possible, I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. In Hebrews 11, those who are dying and dying in faith, will they die knowing that this world is not their home, but they will be resurrected to their true home. So this is, brothers and sisters, this is our only hope, the resurrection. So what does it look like then? What will happen when we are going through this life, admittedly, in grief? How is it going to happen? It's going to be glorious. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend. Not, not a delegate. He's not going to send anybody else. The Lord himself. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an angel. Archangel. And with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And those who are dead, Christ will come. Again, not a delegate, but Christ himself will come. The resurrected Christ will come. With a cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. And those who are dead, those who are beyond our grasp, he will come down and he will grasp them and bring them up. And this is the most beautiful part. Is that death is able to separate us from one another. But we shall never be separated from God. Look. 
for we will always be with the Lord. So when the grief weighs you down, this hope then lifts you up. And so when I see this and I meditate on this throughout the week, I, when I know I shall be with the Lord, I don't grieve those who have passed. I grieve that I'm not with them. That's where I want to be. That's your hope through it all. And this, well, when this is true, this is when you're able to encourage one another with these words. So what does it look like for the Spirit of Christ to make this true in our lives and to live this out in our lives? Well, what do we do? Just one thing. Be ready. So chapter 5, verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You don't know. You don't know when it's going to come. So have a life and a faith that is prepared to meet the Lord. So how do you do that? How do you then prepare yourself? Imagine how... How your life will look differently if your whole life is set, your whole hope is set upon the resurrection, and your whole life is set preparing yourself for this resurrection. Imagine how different your life is going to be. The cares of this world, they just melt away. Why would you want to be encumbered by anything temporal? You, how eager you will be to forgive one another. And how you will strive after holiness of God. Not only that. You will press on your brothers and sisters and encourage them as well to be prepared for the day of the Lord. So your hope. In closing here, your hope. Through the darkest of grief and the deepest of pain. Your only hope is in the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. For he will come down and he will most assuredly grab you and pull you to him. And you will always, you will always be with the Lord. Let us pray. Let us pray. Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.